Good morning to each of you. We have a busy day today as a church family. <clears throat> Lunch will be served here uh, after the message, so <clears throat> you don't have to go very far to get dinner. So don't be too afraid of the clock. It's working against us now, but we'll make up a little time because the distance to travel to dinner is so much shorter. Also, please do remember uh, the evening service. I'm in a song service this evening. You are, you are encouraged to bring your copies of the Zion's praises. So come back for that at 7 o'clock. <clears throat> I would invite you to uh, open your copies of the scriptures to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> and I would invite you to stand as I read uh, the first 15 verses of Corinthians 10. <clears throat> I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Remain standing for prayer. Our Father God, this is your word to us. We recognize it as such. We thank you for it. It does make us uncomfortable. Lord, we need your word. We must have it. And so, guide me as I attempt to explain, to expose, to unpack and apply this passage this morning. May you use these feeble lips and mind 
to deliver your message to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are two purposes for this message this morning. Two purposes from the text that we just read. The first one and the most important one is what is summed up in verse 12. Therefore. What's all this here for? What's all of it there for? Take heed. Let anyone who thinks that he is something, let anyone who thinks that he stands, and the, the context here is spiritual standing, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This passage demonstrates, teaches, that depravity still exists in the life of of the Christian. And if we think that because we are God's people and we've received God's blessing, then somehow we will no longer struggle with our own sinful desires, then we are kidding nobody but ourselves. And we are in the gravest danger. So that's the most important thing I want you to take from this passage. Secondly, this depravity this sinful desire that we carry with us, manifests itself in idolatry. It has always done that. And in almost every case, this idolatry of our hearts is somehow connected in some way to sexual immorality. Again, it has always been this way. Idol worship has always carried with it sexual connotations and overtones. And so today I want to make application of this passage to that issue. This passage can be applied to many different issues. But the issue that comes to the front right here in this passage is the, actual, the issue of sexual immorality. <clears throat> now, for a bit of context, this passage is found in 1 Corinthians. It is written to the church at Corinth, but ultimately it is written to us. It is written for our instruction. It is written down for our instruction, it says in verse 11, on whom the end of the ages has come. And what he's referring to here is the messianic age. We are a part of that. We are after Christ. This is written for us. The church at Corinth was much like us. The Corinthians lived in a world that wasn't too different from our world. Corinth was one of the most prosperous cities in the Roman Empire. A city that set the center of trade routes. It was a very important city in terms of economics. It was also one of the most morally corrupt and sexually promiscuous cities in the Roman Empire. The church at Corinth was very blessed and very privileged. After all, the Apostle Paul was their founding pastor. They had been taught by Apollos. They had been taught by Peter. I mean, this church, they had the best of the best. 
at least by outward appearance, this church was successful. Things were really happening in Corinth. Does any of this sound familiar to you? <coughs> Furthermore, it seems that within the church at Corinth, there were people who were pushing the envelope. There were people who were testing the limits, the limits of Christian liberty. Two of the big issues written, uh, <clears throat> written about by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth in this book, the two main issues, the two big issues are, one, sexual sin, sexual immorality that was, if not tolerated, at least ignored in the church. And secondly, Christians in the Corinthian church were taking advantage of Christian liberty in the area of meat offered to idols. And by doing so, they were putting themselves in danger, in grave danger. Danger of being defiled by this idolatrous association. They were also damaging each other. They were causing other brothers to stumble. And so in short, if you were to sum it up, this church, this church at Corinth, was presuming on the grace of God. They were presuming on the grace of God to their own hurt and to their own destruction. Again, does any of this sound familiar? And so we must take this passage very seriously. This is not about some abstract somebody else, somewhere else. This is about us. The apostles' instructions, the warnings, the exhortations here are directed to us. This applies to us. So let's approach the text with that in, in view. Let's not ask the question or point the finger at others. We must examine our own hearts, both individually and corporately. There are four parts to this passage. The first part is the privilege, verses 1 through 4. The second part is the abuse of the privilege, verses 5 through 10. The third part is the warning, verses 11 and 12. And the final part is the solution in verses 13 through 15. So what is the privilege? The church at Corinth was made up primarily of Gentile believers. These Gentile believers might not have had such an intimate knowledge of Jewish history, although I'm sure they would have been aware of it. But Paul is reminding them here. He wants them to know. He wants them to remember. Now, key in all of this is the fact that even if they were Jews, they would have still needed a reminder. We still need a reminder. We forget. We forget what God has done. We forget how God has dealt with His people. We need to be reminded. And what He is reminding them and us of is this great blessing that the children of Israel experienced in coming out of Egypt and being directed to the Promised Land. He's reminding us that we have experienced the same kinds of blessing. We are partakers of the same goodness and blessing of God as the Israelites were. So what does this look like in terms of the Israelites? Well, they were delivered from Egypt. That's the story of Exodus. They were delivered from bondage, from slavery. And they were delivered in a miraculous way through the Red Sea. 
the sea was walled up on the sides and they walked through on dry land. I mean, this is amazing. Furthermore, they were led, they were directed, and they were protected by God himself. You remember the story. The cloud was over them. When the, when the Egyptian army came after them, God moved that cloud around to provide darkness on one side and light on the other, to, to shield them, to protect them from the enemy. God's presence was so powerful that they could actually see it and feel it. It was a visible demonstration of God's power, of God's presence. It was a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God came between the Israelites and their enemies. The pillar of cloud and fire continued to direct their movements as they went through the, the wilderness. The cloud was a sign of the presence of God. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. It came down. This, this presence of God came down over the temple of meeting or the tabernacle as it was later developed. It was a great blessing. So not only were they delivered from bondage, but they were directed, guided, and protected by God himself in very personal and powerful ways. And thirdly, they were immersed into the leadership of Moses. That's what it says here. Uh, baptized is the word trans transliterated, immersed. They were immersed into the leadership of Moses. They were identified with Moses. They were Moses' people. They had one leader, and that leader was Moses. Furthermore, Moses was a mediator between the people of Israel and God. He was their conduit, their, their avenue by which they related to God. And fourthly, God provided nourishment for them. God provided sustenance for them. He provided what they needed to go on living. He gave them spiritual food, supernatural food. Remember the manna that came down every morning. Remember the quail that hovered three feet off the ground. The quail in such numbers that it fed 600,000 people for a month. That is supernatural. That kind of stuff doesn't just happen. God also provided water, again, supernaturally, out of a rock. A rock is the last place you look for water. A rock is hard, it is cold, it is dry. You don't go to a rock looking for water. But God made water come out of a rock. God knew exactly what they needed. He provided it for them. And the most amazing thing that I see in this passage is that it tells us that Jesus Christ was right here with them. Jesus Christ was the source of this provision for them. Here we are in the Old Testament, and yet we see that Jesus Christ is shown to be the Savior of the children of Israel. He is shown to be their, their sustenance, that which provides for them daily life. Now the parallels for us as Christians should be very obvious. We have been freed from the bondage of sin. That's our Egypt. Slavery to sin. And this is a miraculous salvation. It is accomplished with supernatural power. This is not of our own work, lest we should boast that somehow we had something to do with it. The Israelites had no doubts. When they went through that Red Sea and they looked back and they saw God destroying their enemies, they broke forth in praise to God. They recognized that it was God who had delivered them. 
Some trust in horses and in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the kind of salvation we have been given. And just as the Israelites were immersed into Moses, their leader and their mediator, so we have been immersed into Christ. We have been baptized into Christ, identified with Christ. He is our leader. He is our mediator. We are Jesus people. They were Moses people. We're Jesus people. We identify ourselves as, Christ, as, as one of Christ's. Furthermore, we have been protected and directed by God through His Word, the living Word. Jesus Christ Himself as revealed in the written Word. God has given us richly all things to enjoy. He has blessed us, as it says in Ephesians 1, with every spiritual blessing. That's who we are. That's how we've been blessed. But look what verse 5 says. One of the most tragic verses in all of the New Testament. Nevertheless, in spite of all of this, in spite of this great blessing, this great provision, this great direction, but nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Now, if there was ever an understatement, that is one. There were 600,000 people in the company of the children of Israel when the 12 spies went to spy out the land. 600,000. Does anybody know how many of them made it to the promised land? Two. Two of them. With most of them, God was not well pleased. Two of them. Joshua and Caleb. The proof of this, the proof of this issue, the proof of God not being pleased with them was that they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were discarded in the wilderness. They died. They did not make it to the promised land. So after all these blessings of salvation, Deliverance, direction, leadership, provision, intercession. They didn't please God. Now you would think that all of this would produce grateful, holy, righteous Israelites. You would think that all of this would produce grateful, righteous Christians at Corinth and at Calvary Mennonite Fellowship. You would think. So what's the problem? What was the problem then? What is the problem now? How could there even possibly be a problem? I thought God had delivered them from Egypt, from bondage, from sin. I thought God had provided everything that we need for life and godliness. I thought that God had even provided the very presence of Jesus Christ. I thought that as Christians we were delivered from this sin. How could there possibly be a problem? Well, herein lies the dilemma, the first purpose, as I said, of this message. Depravity still exists in the life of the Christian. If we think that because we are God's people and we've received God's blessings, that somehow we're exempt from this, 
that somehow we will no longer struggle with our own sinful desires, then we are really fooling ourselves. God knows better. The Apostle Paul knew better. Matter of fact, go back to chapter 9, the last few verses right before where we started reading. Here's the Apostle Paul. And he says that athletes compete. They run after the prize. They exercise self-control and everything. They, they do this to receive a, some honor, some perishable honor. But then he says in verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is worried about this or concerned about this. He realizes the danger. The problem is that we still have this propensity to desire evil, as it says they did in verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So although you can take the Israelite out of Egypt, it is an entirely different matter to take Egypt out of the Israelite. Now, what kinds of desires did the Israelites have that qualified as evil desires? Do you remember? What kind of desires were they? Well, the book of Numbers tells us that they desired melons and cucumbers and some meat to eat. They lusted after the food that they had enjoyed in Egypt. And this was labeled as an evil desire. Now, are melons and cucumbers bad things? I don't particularly think so. I, I actually enjoy melons and cucumbers. Now, some of you might wish that instead of melons and cucumbers, the Bible had mentioned broccoli or asparagus. And Pastor Steve probably wishes they would have mentioned bananas. The point is that the Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. But they still had this hankering, this desire, this, this inward bent to go back. They valued the temporal pleasure of food and drink and meat. They valued that more than they valued God and God's provision for them. And this is the essence of idolatry. When we value what we want, when we value our own pleasure, our own tastes, our own appetites, when we value that more than what we value that God has done for us, that God has given to us, that is idolatry. We are now worshiping another God. This is an issue not just of a, of a statue or of a, an idol in terms of physical dimensions. This is an issue of the heart. Ezekiel 14 talks about this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. That's what he's talking about here. You know, the first account that is referenced in terms of the Israelites is the account of the golden calf. We recognize it because we recognize the language. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
And that's a quote from Exodus 32. But notice that it doesn't say anything about a golden calf here. The golden calf wasn't really the problem. The golden calf was just an excuse, more or less, for the Israelites to do the kind of things that they had a hankering to do. To fulfill their, their sinful, evil desires. Now we have some of the same issues. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is, a physical idol. Our struggle is because our hearts are little idol factories. We value our own desires, we value our own pleasures over what God has for us. Over what God has provided for us. And this is evil. And this is real for us. This is where the battle is fought. That's why the first commandment is the first commandment. The first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods. And the New Testament version of that commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, mind, and strength. Until we get this straight, until we get the first commandment straight, until it is the first thing, none of the other things will be kept either. The rest of the commandments will just go right out the window. Often we would like to think that our problems and our sin are the result of something out there, something outside of us. We, we would like to, to think that way because that way we wouldn't have to reckon with and wrestle with what's really inside of us. But the, the, the first chapter of James, as was, was read earlier, makes it very clear where our sin comes from. Our sin comes when we are tempted, we are tried, the pressure is on, and our lusts, our desires within us rise up. And then when that conceives, it brings forth sin and eventually death, as it did here in this illustration of the children of Israel. So these verses are very, <clears throat> very graphic in terms of, of what happens when this evil desire is lived out. Not only did the Israelites attempt to fulfill the sinful desires of their heart, but they actually rejected, they, they pretty much thumbed their nose at God. They, they complained about what God had given to them. And we see what the results were. There was judgment, there was death, there was destruction. For some, it was almost instant death. For others, it was a slow and painful death. We remember the plagues that it talks about here and the diseases and the snake bites that God brought to them. But for all of them, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, for all of them, they would be overthrown in the wilderness. They would never experience the promised land. Now, it should not be hard for us to get the message here. <clears throat> it should not be hard for us to see how this relates to us. And the issue here, as is in focus in verse 8, is revolves around sexual immorality. Also in verse 7, actually, the eating and drinking and rising up to play, that word has sexual connotations. Evidently, the children of Israel were naked. They were having an orgy. They were participating in rampant, sexual immorality. And this wasn't the only time. Numbers talks about it a couple of times where they 
went to worship other gods, and as a part of this worship, they became involved in prostituting themselves. So, when we participate in sexual immorality, we are basically thumbing our nose at God. We're saying, God, I don't like what you've provided. I don't like the way you've designed it to work. I'm going to do it my own way. I value my own pleasure over your will. When as a husband or a wife, you look at another man or another woman with lustful intent, you're saying to God, God, what you've provided me is worthless. I want something else. You are no different than the Israelites who grumbled and complained about the manna and the quail. And when you look at pornography, you're saying to God, God, your design for sexuality is not what I want. I want something else. I want those melons and cucumbers and the meat of Egypt. And you had best be glad that God is a God of mercy and grace. That God is a God who is long-suffering. Else you too would be dead. Now notice, God didn't kill all the Israelites outright. He killed 23,000 here and 3,000 there. And another couple thousand <clears throat> somewhere else. But there were 600,000 of them. He didn't kill them all at once outright. But eventually, death caught up to all of them. So just because you escape the immediate consequences, just because you escape the immediate threat of death and destruction, that doesn't mean you've escaped. You're still in the wilderness and you're not getting out alive. These things happened to them as an example for us. Then the warnings in verse 11 and 12. <clears throat> These things were written down for our instruction. They were written down so that we could benefit from this, so that we would not make the same mistakes that they made. And if, if we think that we are exempt, if we think that somehow we have got it better or different than they did. That we are not subject to the same issues. Then we are in gravest danger because he who thinks that he stands must take heed lest he fall. Proverbs says that pride goeth before destruction. And my concern is today in the church at large in our church, in our hearts, that we have far too much spiritual pride. That we somehow think that we've kind of got it together. That we really don't have as many problems as they do out there. Let me tell you, if you think that way, you are setting yourself up for disaster. Disaster of the kind of proportions that this passage talks about. 
It has always been this way. God does not tolerate. God does not value the proud heart, but the humble. We look at the children of Israel and we say, wow, that was pretty raunchy. I mean, they experienced the blessing of God and within 24 hours, they're back at their complaining again. Just go read Exodus and Numbers. It about makes you mad. What are these people thinking? We do the same thing. We might not do it out loud. But when we sin, when we give in to our lust, when we think thoughts of fantasy, we're doing the same thing the Israelites did. When we violate God's commands, God's order, the way God has made things to work in terms of sexuality, we're doing the same thing the Israelites did. And we might come to church here on Sunday morning and we might feel all spiritual. But what happens on Monday morning? What happens Wednesday morning and Friday night? Now the solution to this problem is here in the final verses 13 to 15. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Well, that's actually part of the warning. I don't find that particularly comforting. Because you see, we, we want our experience to be an exception to the rule. We want to believe that there are some special mitigating circumstances. Some special reasons why I, I just can't do it. God is saying... Yeah, you're not that special. No. You got the same issues everybody else has got. So get over thinking that you're somebody special and that the rules don't apply to you. That God's judgment doesn't apply to you. It does. It is comforting in some way to realize that what I struggle with is what all of you struggle with to some measure or another. But it's comforting in kind of a perverse way because... Why would I want you to struggle like I struggle? No temptation has overtaken you, but that is common to man. And now here's the real hope. The real hope in all of this. God is faithful. We aren't. The Israelites weren't. The church at Corinth wasn't. But God is. God is faithful. And God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Whoa, that ratchets up the responsibility. When you face temptation, do you realize that is God saying you can handle it? You can handle it. I'm not going to give you more than you can handle. God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond our ability. But he will, with the temptation, also provide a way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. Now, one day at the market, there was a little boy who was standing by some candy. And he looked like he was going to put some in his pocket. And he stood there for a long time. And finally the clerk spoke to him and he said, Looks like you're trying to take some candy. The little boy replied, You're wrong, mister. I'm trying not to. For the moment, he was enduring. But I fear that too often we're like that little boy. We like to look at the candy. We like to smell the candy. We like to see how close we can get to the candy. We know we shouldn't take any. But we hang, all, hang around the candy an awful lot. What does the Bible say? Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee, get away, run away as fast as you can from idolatry. We've already talked about what idolatry is. Idolatry is the valuation of anything of our own pleasure and our own desires above what God desires or in contradiction to what God desires. Therefore, my beloved, flee. And the apostle says here, I'm speaking to sensible people. Okay? You can figure this out. It shouldn't be that hard. If you have a problem with candy, or if you have a problem with sexual immorality, if you have a problem with pornography, if you have a problem with any kind of devious, sinful behavior, you don't go over and try to get as close to it as you can without falling in. You flee. You run away. You take whatever measures are necessary. Judge for yourselves. Isn't this sensible? Isn't this the way it ought to be? And yet, why don't we do that? Because you see, our desires are corrupt. We still have a hankering for Egypt. Now, that seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But God is faithful. God is faithful. He provides an escape. Now, sometimes when we think about escape, we think about a place of peace and rest and relaxation, a place where everything goes well, where there's no struggle. We think about heaven, right? Sorry, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. This escape that he's talking about, it's an escape all right. But the language here actually has the idea of you're in a valley and you're surrounded by enemy armies. And there is no way out. And all of a sudden, God opens up a mountain pass where you see it for the first time. And you realize there, there's a way I can get out. But it requires you to hike up that mountain. It requires you to strategically get away. It might require you to flee. That might be one of God's escape paths, to flee. But whenever you face temptation, there is always a means, a way of escape. Go back with me 
to verse 9. Go back with me to verse 9. Because here is, here's the real solution. It's not actually in the text. We have to know something about the story that it's talking about. You remember the children of Israel were grumbling again. And God sent the serpents. They were actually putting God to the test here. They were, were doing more than just grumbling. They were grumbling about leadership. And they were taking matters into their own hands. And God sent snakes, poisonous snakes, slithering through the whole camp. And people were bitten and people were dying. And you remember what the solution was? It is the solution that Jesus Christ referenced himself being. Moses was to take and fashion a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And then when the people were bitten, they were to look at that bronze serpent and they would be healed. Now, there's some very interesting things about this. For one, God didn't get rid of the snakes. The snakes were still there, biting people. Does that relate to any of you? You still got the temptations. You still got the struggle. God's not just going to take it away. Always. The snakes are still there. The snakes are still biting. The difference is, now there's some hope. Now you can look at that bronze serpent and trust that you will be healed. You put your faith and your confidence in Jesus Christ and the bite loses its sting. The victory has been won. But you still got snakes scurrying around your feet trying to bite you. So here's the solution. Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, the Israelites had that. It says that Jesus Christ was with them. He was following them. Yes. But what they needed was more of him and less of themselves. And what we need is more of him and less of us. So how are you going to do this? Well, you can need to flee. That's one way of escape. But even when you flee, you've still got the snakes with you because there's this desire in your heart that is bent towards evil. So what do we do with that? Well, we meditate on the Word. We immerse ourselves into Christ. Psalm 119 says in verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When the test comes, we turn to the Word of God. We Don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to your own lusts. Turn to God, to His Word. You listen to that. Secondly, you pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. You can't deliver yourself. The Israelites couldn't deliver themselves. You surely can't deliver yourself. You must plead with God to do the deliverance. 
You turn to God and cry out to Him. Ephesians 6 talks about taking the shield of faith so that you can quench these fiery darts that come at you. We must trust God. We must put our confidence in Him. And another important element, maybe a fourth one is, we must look to Christ. Just as those Israelites looked at that serpent raised up in the wilderness. And Jesus came and said, I am that serpent raised up. You look to Christ. He endured every temptation. He was faithful. We can trust in Him. You're not going to do this by yourself. You're not going to fight this battle in your own strength. You will lose. The Israelites, once they got the word that they were going to die in the wilderness because of their lack of trust in God, after the 12 spies came back and Moses told them, sorry, you blew it. You're not going to go to the promised land. You know what they did? They got at this idea that they're going to go to the promised land anyway. If God's not going to take us there, we're going to go on our own. And we know what happened. They were utterly destroyed. No power whatsoever. And Moses warned them. He said, if God isn't with you, you're not getting anything good out of this. Same thing goes for our struggles, for our temptations, for our struggle with the sin that resides within us. If God is not dealing with that, if God is not in the fight, <clears throat> if God is not doing the work of redemption in your heart, you are fighting a losing battle. There is no test that is more than we can bear. There is no temptation that overtakes us, that hasn't already overtaken somebody. We have a choice to make. When we fail, it's because we made the wrong choice. We chose to listen to ourselves rather than to God. We chose to value our own pleasure over God's pleasure. We chose not to turn to the Word of God, which is our sustenance, and instead we turn to ourselves. If we fail, it's because we take our attention away from Christ. Now, we have all fallen into this trap too many times, way too many times. But our Heavenly Father is faithful. He was faithful to the children of Israel time and time and time again. And He provides a way back, a way to be restored to Himself through repentance and confession through restoration. If ye sin, confess your sin. Agree with God about the way things really are. And cry out to Him for His mercy and grace, for His salvaging of your heart. This is the solution. And never forget that you have the option to flee. People say, well, I just can't help myself. Or the devil made me do it. Or any other number of excuses. No. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. He will provide a way of escape. The problem is we don't want the way of escape. We like the candy too much. 
We like the melons and the cucumbers and the quail too much, or the meat. We don't like the quail. That's what God gave us. We get tired of the manna, the word of Christ. That's our problem. So, as the Apostle Paul said to himself and to the Corinthian church, we must discipline our bodies. We must keep under control. Lest after having experienced the blessings of God, the saving work of God, the provision of God, the leading of God, after all of this, we would become disqualified, a castaway. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are heavy because we know. We know deep down inside that there's no good thing within us. That we are still bent towards sin. And Father, may we, may we be reminded of this. Oh, help us not to think too highly of ourselves. But may we think highly of you. Convict us, convince us. Show us the error of our thinking. Show us the, the awful, wretched state of our heart without you. And may you work in our hearts this redeeming, salvaging work of grace. You alone can do it, Lord. It is not ours to do. But may we know your way of escape. Lord, show us the things that we need to flee from. Show us the temptations that we give into without even thinking. And may we turn to Jesus Christ as our only hope, the only Savior of our souls. And will you finally take us to the promised land?